I hope you will afford me one more nerdy illustration. The homeschooled Christian kids are going to love this one. It's been such a joy to walk through these things with you guys, especially today as we talk about the hope of the church. And um, I want to read from one of my favorite sections from the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I'm going to restrain myself with all my might from doing the voices that come into my head. So, for the sake of seriousness and, you know. But one of my favorite sections of the book, and I imagine if you've read it, maybe one of yours as well, is when Edmund, Peter, Susan, and Lucy encounter the beavers, and they're starting to find out what's going on in this world they found in their closet. And they start talking about Aslan. And the kids are confused. Who who is Aslan? And that's where this starts. So Susan asked the beavers, who is Aslan? Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know he is the king? He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment, and he'll settle the white white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him to stone, said Edmund. Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him to stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, which is one of my favorite sections that Lewis has ever written, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And we have more than our fair share of white witches and winters that we face in the real world. Evil, the problem of it, is something that Christians have been discussing for many years. So we deal with this sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's just as potent here. Sometimes it feels just as potent as the snow that covered Narnia at this time. But our hope is this, that one day, evil will be vanquished. As the Scripture says, our great hope is that death will be swallowed up in victory, and we will forever be with our King. We can already walk in such hope here and now, but it is also something that we look forward to in its completion. The hope of the church is the sure inheritance of the glory of glory in the presence of God forever. And before we get into the text a little more, I want us to quickly define 
biblically what hope is, because it's much different than many of us when we use the word hope today, right? It's not, I hope we can have nachos after church, right? Or I hope I win the lottery ticket. It's not that sort of blind, shooting in the dark sort of thing. But biblical hope, as seen in Hebrews 11.1, is deeply connected to our faith. This isn't some sort of wishful thinking, but it's assurance. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So our hope that we're going to be talking about today is not some sort of shot in the dark, maybe it'll happen one day. But it is very real here and now and even more real here to come. The first thing I want to put before you today is that our hope is certain because God is sovereign. Our hope is certain because God is sovereign. And I think when we look at this passage, particularly Ephesians chapter 1, there's a whole section that we didn't read right in the beginning that talks about this power of God, this sovereignty of God, particularly in salvation, but even more so than that, as we read on all things. And I think it's important as we read this, we understand a little bit of the Ephesian context. So what the church at Ephesus had surrounding them is very vital to our understanding what's, what, why Paul is communicating this way in Ephesians. Ephesus was a town known for very mystical and pagan practices. And you can see some of that background in Acts chapter 19. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, but I'm going to hit some highlights for you really quick, just some things that happened in that book when Paul's in Ephesus. Um, we see one of the things that the church does is that they burn their magic books, okay? Now, the, it wasn't Harry Potter, okay? Just saying. That's not what they were burning, okay? They, they were actual occult practices. These were things that they were putting their trust in, these sort of mystic things. And they, the church, when they came to Christ, they said, we don't need this anymore, so we're going to get rid of this. And it was actually great value. The scripture tells us it was very valuable amount of stuff that they burned. Okay? And then the other thing we have is the temple of the goddess Artemis was located in Ephesus. In the book of Acts, there's actually a riot that breaks out because of, of the Christianity that's happening there. Um, the guys that were making the idols to the goddess Artemis were losing business. And they're not happy about that. It's like these guys are saying that gods made with hands are not gods. What kind of junk is that? So they started riot. Artemis um, was, was this uh, goddess that the temple was focused in. There's a lot of darkness there around this, this place. So it helps us inform us. The people are looking to sort of these paganistic, mystic things because of the power, hidden power supposedly in these things. So when Paul addresses the Ephesians in his letter, he begins with an emphasis on the unshakable, certain, sovereign power of God. Because in their context, this is vitally important that that is understood. So much so in our context as well. 
In our text, it tells us that we have obtained an inheritance that has been predestined by our God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. One of the things you may have picked up on um, is that the word inheritance shows up three times in our text today. And the other two uses of inheritance are, are more plain. It's, in the Greek, it, it means what you would think it means. Um, but this first one, this inheritance mentioned here that's connected to the sovereignty of God, it's actually tweaked just a little bit. So that the word is just slightly modified, it's slightly different, with a similar meaning. But when we think of inheritance, most of the time we think of, right, dad left me something or mom left me this. But th- this has a different vibe to it. Um, and this use of the word inheritance here in verse 11 implies that it was something attained by lot. So if you don't know what that is, a lot, lots are kind of like dice is the closest thing we have um, in our day. But that's something people would cast, they would throw down to decide things. That's what Jonah happened to him when he got thrown over the boat. They threw lots and said, yep, you lose. Sorry, buddy. Out. Right? It, it, it appears to be like dice, a game of chance. Right? When the lots are cast, we don't know what's going to happen. Whoever the lot falls on, that's what the decision is made for. That, this kind of thing happened a lot in ancient culture. And that's kind of the word inheritance there is, is saying something that was obtained by lot, which I think is in, it's just fascinating given the rest of the context. It calls to mind Proverbs 16, 33, and I remember correctly, one of the brothers in here, I remember at our members meeting, I think it was Andrew, prayed specifically and reminded us of this. And it says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So in other words, what appears random to us is actually designed and intentioned. And I love that that's what's connected here. The lot has fallen to us to receive this inheritance, but it's not by chance. I I just love that imagery. Our hope is certain because we have been given an inheritance by the one who holds the past, present, and future in his hands all at once, all the time. It's an unshakable inheritance. It's not something that we are, we should fright that we're going to lose. It's an intentional inheritance. This is how our God works. The sovereign will. Your breakfast, or lack thereof in my case this morning, was providentially provided by him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How much more your salvation? How much more the grace that you've received? This harkens back to Daniel chapter 2, and I mentioned last week that our God, He sets up kings and He takes down kings. He runs this place. All, as verse 12 says, 
so that we will be to the praise of his glory. Your inheritance is certain. It's as certain as God is sovereign, which is to say it is absolutely certain. The great hope he has promised, we have no fear of losing. This next section, I, w- I want to spend probably the bulk of our time here because I think many of us, when we think about the hope of the church in the future, we can shy away from the hope that we experience here and now. It's like we put everything on Revelation 21, that's the best, can't wait to get there, and we neglect what we have here. So I want us to spend some ample time on this, that our hope is here and now. Here and now, we have believed the gospel and have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God that dwells in us. With that comes a foretaste of the fullness of our inheritance. You see, what is the great hope in Revelation 21, which we'll get to later? It's that God is what? Present. That God is present with us. And yet Paul wants to remind us, God is already present with you. That his spirit lives in you. And it's sealed you for that final day. It's a foretaste of what's to come. Or as Paul says here in Ephesians, a guarantee. The Spirit gives us a new way of living now that reflects the hope that is to come. As we've walked through this sort of series on the church, we can point to the last three things and point to the work of the Spirit. We can look at what is the heart of the church that we profess that Jesus is king by the Holy Spirit, right? What is the community of the church? We're here as a part of the family of God because all Christians are indwelt by the same Spirit. And we're able to do the work of missions by the empowerment of the Spirit. You see, the hope that the Spirit gives us here and now It's what keeps the church going and functioning and doing these things. But I want to touch on one of my favorite things when I think about our hope here and now and the Spirit's activity, and that's this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans 8, 26 tells us this, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't even know what to pray The Spirit helps us. When the brokenness of the world feels like it's caving in around you and your heart is moving towards despair, remember that here and now you can't lose anything that has been promised by God. Nothing. I'm going to read a pretty long section here of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And starting in verse 16, it's going to bleed over into chapter 5, verse 5. Listen to this. Soak this in. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit, here it is again, as a guarantee. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I can think of some times in my life that did not feel light and momentary. I can think of great suffering and loss that I'm still dealing with today. Lots of sorrow. And I haven't even been on this earth that long compared to some. We feel that. And Paul is trying to get our attention here to change our mindset and say, listen, the hope that you have now by this spirit that lives in you, that's pointing ahead to what's to come, believe this hope. Your affliction, your suffering, your sorrow, your pain, compared to what's coming, is light and momentary. That's a hard truth for us to grasp, especially in the midst of it. But it is true nonetheless. What does the hymn say that's probably the most well-known in the world? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We will not be focusing on remembering. It won't even matter anymore the amount of affliction that we dealt with but we can tap into that here and now by the Spirit. And it looks messy. It looks like a suffering mingled with joy that makes no sense to the world around us. But we have access by the Spirit. And because the Spirit has empowered us to believe in Jesus, we can now fix our eyes on Him all the way to glory. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus is our example in this. Suffering mixed with joy. As he looked to what was to come through his work, so we look to him and his work to what is to come.
And we are able to do this because of Ephesians 1.18 in our text, which says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This use of the word inheritance is more like the traditional one. But here's the funny thing about this one. It's not talking about your inheritance. It's not talking about my inheritance. What does the text say? His glorious inheritance in the saints. This inheritance is God's. And it's in his people. God, what hope this is. God is pleased to have you, his church, as his inheritance. Churches like ours that have a high view of God, sometimes I think we forget the emphasis that the Scripture puts here. You know, there's a, a certain sort of way of viewing this, the Scriptures that we can, we can tend to look at and, and rightly so be skeptical of some other things that are said, right? Because we have a high view of God. We, we want to see God in the Scripture. We want to see Him glorified. We don't want this to be about us or ourselves, and that's a right impulse, right? It, we shouldn't want to make much of ourselves. We should want to make much of Jesus. Absolutely, yes and amen. Let's keep doing that. But let us not forget. Let us not forget how deeply loved we are. Let us not forget. It's a healthy impulse to push back against the sort of Jesus is my boyfriend language, right? I, it's good. We shouldn't want to make it all about us. Yes and amen. But we are missing what God has for us in his word if we neglect just how much he loves us. If we don't think on it, if we don't let that drive our joy that we are loved by God, we need that so much. I think, uh, and this is, Graham and I this week did communicate, but we did not communicate about this. And this is one of those mind-blowing, thank you, Lord, Holy Spirit, you're in this. Um, that song we sang at the end in Zephaniah, in my, I didn't, he didn't know that that's in my text. That's one of the things that I wanted to bring out to put this very point before you. How beautiful is that? Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and the mind-blowing, he will exult over you with singing. 
don't you know how loved you are? If you are his in Christ, your inheritance is beautiful. But God is saying, hey, so is mine. Here's the beautiful thing about the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, and making much of God. He doesn't need us at all, and yet he willingly, intentionally wants us. I can't comprehend that sort of love. I think this is what, where Paul gets tripped up in Romans 8 when he just starts doxology, just pray. Like, this goes deeper than I could possibly express. Praise be to God that nothing can separate us from his love. What great hope we have here and now when we think on these things. Lastly, I want to put before you that our hope is yet to come. The taste that we have now, the beauty that we get to experience now, it's real. But there is still something in us, and there will be until glory, that's longing for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Verses 19 to 20 begin to transition our thinking from hope that we already have to the hope that is to come. And it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I'm going to keep going. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's important that we understand the connection of these two things to embrace the kingdom that we've been given, the already, the not yet, the hope we have now, the hope that is to come. And these verses bring us back to Jesus' authority mentioned last week that we talked about in Daniel when he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and languages come and they, they bow before him and they serve him. In this age and the age to come, The hope that we have to come is not just intensified enjoyment of the presence of God, which is a big part of it. But then we get to that Revelation 21. It is the eradication, the elimination of sorrow and suffering and pain. God uses our suffering here and now. That's part of the great hope that we have. I'll never forget, it was, it was right after um, Pastor John Piper had left his church. Um, he preached a sermon, it was right before technically, I think. And his thesis statement is one of those that has stuck with my soul for a long time since I've heard it. I just can't forget it. And what he said was what the world needs from the church is to see our indomitable joy in the midst of suffering. This is part of our witness. This is part of our mission. But that's not the, the whole story. 
That, that's a beautiful, true thing for here and now. But there is something coming that's going to eliminate that. See, God right now is using all of these situations in ways we can't comprehend, we can't think of. I know many of you, probably like me, have felt, why God this now at times? Why did you bring this before me now? You may never get an answer for that. You may be like Job and just have to put your hand over your mouth and go, I trust you. But there is a day coming to use Tolkien's language, when everything sad will come untrue. There is a day coming in Revelation 21, and let's just read some of this together. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Let this sink in, because as I was preparing this and thinking about what am I going to say about the hope that is to come, the best thing I I think I can do is just read this. And let let that wash into you this morning. It says this, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Our great hope for the future is that one day our God will shut out the dark for good. One of the most beautiful things said later on in Revelation is that there won't even be a sun in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because God himself will be our steadfast light. Our great hope is that Jesus keeps his promises. That all the things God has said he's going to do, he's absolutely going to do. And you can look at it like this. Our hope here and now is we've seen him already do many of the things he said he was going to do by sending his spirit, by sending his son, by empowering his church. We've seen many of the ways he has been faithful time and time and time again. And because of that, we can trust he's going to be faithful to do these things. The Revelation 21 is not a pipe dream. 
You know, one of the things that I, I hear often from friends who, who, don't, who don't believe this is they think, I, I'm just going to die and there's going to be nothing. And, you know, I used to hear all the time growing up in church this sort of gambling sort of mentality about this, that, well, I would rather take my chances with Jesus and be right than do your thing and be wrong. And forgive me for saying that, I just got to say, that is a stupid thing to say. I understand the, the impulse. I understand, but that is not the hope that God has given you. He's not given you a chance that it might all be real. But as Scripture says in Romans 8, that His Spirit lives in us, and it cries out within us, Abba, Father, that we know what we know is certain. This is the sort of Christianity that's biblical. This is the sort of hope that's biblical. That we can trust God to do what he said he's going to do. I want to recap briefly with you as we walk through this time, some of the things that have come up. The list of ways that the church is spoken of in Scripture is much longer than four Sundays. There is so much that could be said. There's so much that could be explored. But I do hope that as we've walked through this, we've hit some things that that were beneficial, things that remind us of just how good God is in establishing his church. So we said that the heart of the church is the power of God producing in his people the true confession that Jesus is the Son of God. The community of the church is one that sees more value in Christ and in one another than in our material possessions or anything the world can give us. The mission of the church is ultimately the mission of God which is to make known the dominion, glory, and kingdom of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. And then today, the hope of the church is the sure inheritance of glory in the presence of God forever. Christian, we have hope because God has done all the work and provision that we could ever possibly need. We are able as Christians to say the one thing that I don't think anyone else can say. I have enough. My soul has enough. What God has done is enough. It's more than enough. My cup overflows. The grace that saved us is also the same grace that sustains us. That when you get discontent and you fight and struggle against sin, that the same grace that saved you is what's going to sustain you through those moments. Our sin nature needs us to be, we need to remind ourselves because of the sin nature that we have enough. 
that the hope that we have now is sure. And the hope we have to come is better than we could possibly imagine. Church, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Maybe you're in here and and you're one of those who, I just don't believe any of this. Um, Let me share one thing with you from, and and of course I, I had to go back to Narnia for this, just because I think it's so good. From a different book, from a different section, in the silver chair, we have a character named Jill who meets Aslan the lion. If you, don't, if you haven't caught on yet, Aslan is supposed to represent the Christ-type figure. He's not actually Jesus, okay? But this, this helps us understand, I think, some of the beauty of, of how Jesus works from the biblical perspective. Jill's sitting by a stream next to Aslan, terrified. And Aslan asks her, are you not thirsty, said the lion. And Jill says, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. Jill says, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? I love that answer. (laughs) You just turn around for a second. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, she says. Aslan says, I make no promises. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had to come a step nearer. And I love this quote, my, my favorite question from, from Jill. Do you eat little girls? I love the question because it's so childlike and honest. And, and I think when we're facing something like this, when we're face-to-face with the God the Bible presents us with, it's a good question. Hey, are, are you going to hurt me? What's going to happen here? Aslan's answer is, I have swallowed up girls and boys and women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say these things as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. To which Aslan replies, there is no other stream. This is just a metaphorical story. But it does give us a good picture. And if you're here this morning and you've not trusted the person of Jesus, I want to tell you, there is no other stream. There's nowhere else to go if you're thirsty. This is how powerful our God is. He is able to make dead things live, as we've seen in Ephesians. 
He's able to accomplish the great work of forgiving sinners and satisfying their longings. He's able to do it without any opposition, as we saw in our text today, because he planned it from before time began. All things that you think might be keeping you from believing. Here's the beautiful thing about our Ephesians 1 text. All the things this morning, if you're an unbeliever, that, might, that you think might be keeping you from trusting Christ might be the very things that he is using to bring you to himself. All the skepticism, all the hurt, all the pain. He could be bringing you here now, this moment, to hear about his word, to know the person of Jesus Christ so that you would believe, as we say around here often, and have life in his name. He is that powerful. And just as we have seen this morning, that we as the church have great hope, we invite you to join us in that hope. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will live. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the grace upon grace that we have that we have such hope, such undefeatable, undeniable hope in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect on that often as we are still waiting for your great return. We are still waiting, waiting for you to put all things right. Let us, along with the Apostle Paul, let us not lose heart. that we can trust that you're doing a great work and that in all of our affliction is light and momentary by comparison. Lord, we want to thank you for your church, for calling people to your name that we might be gathered together and have such wonderful community and connection. Lord, we pray that as we go and as we continue to do this work, that we would not forget our hope, that it is not frivolous, that it's not an uncertain hope, but a hope that is absolutely certain. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.